You're listening to a Mornings with Kelly and Steve podcast. Be sure to check us out every weekday morning from 6 to 9 on Moody Radio. Getting ready to join Dr. Glenn Dewar of Cedarville University. He is the Associate Professor of International Studies there. Going to be talking about what's happening in the world around us and the conflicts that are going on, what may be coming next, how should we view these things, how can we be praying about these things. And I mentioned this just a minute ago, Dr. Dewar, if you were um, listening there in our back channel. i got to ask you, too, since we've asked everyone else, what is your favorite Bible verse to lean on when times get tough? Absolutely, be happy to share, and really, Scripture is so rich, so there are many, many uh, verses from which to choose, but uh, given what I study, and given the calamities that often come up in the world, I I like to go to the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, and to paraphrase quickly, uh, it gives us a much broader sense of uh, believers from every nation, tribe, and tongue uh, worshiping the Lord, and that's always comforting to me, because in times of peril and uh, even in times of peace, it can seem you know, challenging. We can sometimes feel isolated as believers in Christ. But to know that there's literally you know, thousands upon thousands, by some estimates, over, over a billion people that are believers in Christ in some way, shape, or form, two billion is, is sometimes the upward number. It really is remarkable to think we're not alone and that there have been believers for 2,000 years um, since the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, into the future there will be believers as well who go through things and uh, experience turmoil, and and that's comforting because others have gone through it. Um, There's a universal church praying for one another, and that's, that's really one on which I can really lean. I don't think I've ever heard anyone mention Revelation before, but I, I like the way you view that and the way you think on that. That is encouraging. That really is. I appreciate you sharing that. And then, you know, since you mentioned Revelation, too, in light of, uh, you know, what we're going to talk about this morning, I know, because we've mentioned this before as we've talked about what's happening in Israel. Anytime anything is happening with Israel, I think so many Christians look at that and wonder, is any part of this any part of fulfillment of any sort of prophecy? Does this signal anything that is super significant? And we're watching Israel continue to um, work against Hamas, and we're watching Hezbollah uh, begin to, well, not begin, but continue to make moves. And now I I heard in the news just recently, I was, I I cannot remember, I want to say maybe it was Reuters where I read this, not positive though, so don't quote me on that, but that there may be um, threats, um, being intercepted where they're possibly going to, that it's not out of the realm of possibility that Hezbollah may make strikes on U.S. soil, which I would suppose that's not out of the realm of possibility considering what happened way back on 9-11. Have you heard any discussion of that? There's an awful lot happening. I gave a a talk at a men's breakfast at a local church in southwest Ohio on Saturday and was piecing together for everyone just not only do you have Hamas's terrible invasion of Israel, but you also have Hezbollah that's fired upwards of 2,000 rockets and missiles into northern Israel from mm-hmm. southern Lebanon. There are all kinds of militia groups uh, backed by Iran in Syria and Iraq, and most recently there's been yet another attack on a U.S. base that's been somewhat frequent, but this one, uh, there were dangers of brain injury among our troops. 
We have the Houthis and Allah that's been fighting a civil war in Yemen for uh, approaching a decade now, but they too have attacked uh, Israel and also uh, U.S. flagged ships in the Red Sea, mm-hmm. and the U.S. and the U.K. have responded on that. And then Pakistan and Iran have yeah. exchanged missile fire. Most of it's aimed at insurgent groups within the other country, so it's not them against one another, but it's a challenging picture because if you draw a line and look at civil wars in places like Sudan and Libya, conflict in Egypt, in sorry Ethiopia, uh, ongoing issues in Syria, they've gone well past a decade of their civil war. Armenia and Azerbaijan have had confrontations, and then that's not even to get into Russia and Ukraine. There is a lot of turmoil that's ticked up. Certainly there have been worse cases. I mean, I think of my grandparents' generation in World War II and what they went through, but certainly this is a, a challenging moment. And as you referenced, too, there are dangers of Hezbollah and other terrorist organizations penetrating the southern border. That has long been feared and never materialized, but mm-hmm. just the reports I'm getting from Customs and Border Patrol, I have two form, recent former students that are in those roles, and there are just there are scary numbers of people from countries that don't make a ton of sense that are coming across that border. It makes sense that people from various parts of Latin America are trying to flee difficult dictatorships. I might not agree, uh, and legally they're, they're breaking the law, but I also can understand that. But there are a lot of people from very different parts of the world that have flown in and now are trying to get across the southern border, and that is really disconcerting. That is disconcerting, to say the least. And I'm, I'm curious, too, uh, speaking of uh, Iran just a moment ago, um, what is happening in Iran itself? Because, and, and this just may be me misinterpreting what I'm reading, that's why we have you on this morning, but it, it almost seems like uh, the regime in Iran is starting to crumble a bit around the edges. What, what is happening there? Absolutely. It's very hard to know to get internal to authoritarian regimes, but several pieces have been changing in recent years. We sometimes in the U.S. media take Iran as just this a very homogenous country, but the Persian majority, sorry, ethnic and linguistic majority in the country is only around two-thirds. And if you were to draw a line around the periphery of Iran, there are all kinds of Sunni Muslims that oppose the regime, ethnic minorities that oppose the regime, and we've seen a major women's rights movement simply, if we recall from 2022, Masa Amini, the 22-year-old Kurdish young lady that was killed by the um, morality police for not wearing her hijab correctly, mm-hmm. that's caused significant uprising. And some missions organizations have made the claim that in Tehran, the capital of Iran, we're seeing the growth of evangelical Christianity in very, very significant numbers underground. And so there are all these moving pieces, let alone COVID, let alone economic turmoil, that are really, there's a lot in the air. Uh, On the one hand, I can see the Iranian regime muddling through. It's done so for many, many years. But there could be a breaking point as well. Sometimes these unexpected things like the fall of the Soviet Union do happen. Mm-hmm. and it could be replicated in Iran. It's certainly possible, maybe not likely, but certainly possible. Where does China fit into this whole thing right now? Um, 
I know that China has had somewhat of an alliance with Russia, or so it appears anyway, but it, it also, with something that I read last week, and I'm sorry I cannot recall exactly what all the details were, but it appears that China is allying itself with Iran as well, where the Houthis are concerned. So that was yet another uh, a cog in the wheel that um, seemed to be turning, and I was getting really confused with all the different moving pieces. Yes, the, the Chinese equivalent of NATO is the CSTO, and under that umbrella, Russia uh, is there, and Iran, and a range of different countries, some that don't make sense and some that are actually enemies. But periodically, they will also engage in joint military exercises. It seems to me that China is looking at Vladimir Putin as, as someone that's useful for their ends, but they don't necessarily love the Russians uh, Russia stole a good chunk of the territory in China's north, what is Russia's far east, in the 19th century. And with 1.4 billion people uh, in, in a territory the size of the United States, so imagine our country plus a billion people, China's a fair bit more crowded. And knowing that Russia stole that land from them, uh, I see this as there, there could be tension one day. But China's happy to prop up regimes to maintain stability in places like Russia and Iran, because if there is an uprising, some form of revolution, it would weaken China's hand overall. But China itself is going through undulations. We hear a lot in our news media how they want Taiwan. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they're going through a pretty significant economic slowdown. And Xi has become, the, the Secretary General of the Chinese Communist Party has become much, much more dictatorial. He was supposed to step down last year uh, under their system and has given himself a third term. And there are a good number of people in China that are unhappy with this because the exchange was, if you support me politically, we'll keep growing the economy. But now the economy's uh, sputtering and there have been very, very severe COVID lockdowns that have been unpopular with a lot of people. So... China in and of itself has challenges internally. What is happening with Taiwan at the moment? Because they seem to be dangling out there in the breeze. We know that China wants to absorb Taiwan. The U.S. has traditionally um, defended Taiwan, but it seems that um, we've backed off a bit to a degree. What, what is their status at the moment? Taiwan last week had a presidential election, and uh, the outcome is basically a continuation of the status quo. The vice president uh, won the election, so there's now President-elect Lee. Uh, the still ongoing uh, president who is, um, will be leaving the office soon, President Tsai Ing-wen, uh, has been fiercely supportive of Taiwan's at least autonomy. She's maybe not pushed the envelope to gain full membership of the United Nations or something along those lines, but Taiwan has... Uh, elected a leader that will continue to support its independence. They pushed against aligning with China. And we've seen a lot of Taiwanese armaments uh, from outside countries, but also building their own, looking at the lessons of Ukraine. And they're effectively trying to create themselves to be like a porcupine, that one way or another, if you could try and tangle with this porcupine, you may squash it, but you're going to get mm -hmm. uh, your, your arm injured in all of it. And uh, I've heard from a range of different sources that should Taiwan, China ever invade Taiwan, some of the most valuable plants for rare earth minerals and computer chips 
may be burned to the ground immediately to not allow China to get it. And so increasingly, as each day goes forward, Taiwan's becoming more and more like a porcupine. It's going to be difficult. Whether or not they can keep that readiness over the long term is is a big question because Xi has said it wants Taiwan back. He, He wants Taiwan back in the fold. Wow. I want to shift around to uh, North Korea for just a minute, too, because I've been hearing some rumblings from there as well that they are no longer going to consider any reunification whatsoever with South Korea, and they're considering them an enemy, and they seem to be ramping up um, with military exercises and considering uh, launching more missiles. That was the last thing that I read, as I recall, going into the weekend, and they seem to be creating quite a bit of stress. Absolutely. This this relationship between the North and South has gone through many different undulations. There's uh, a sense that times where maybe unification is possible South Korea theoretically has a governmental department on reunification where close to 45 people, it's their job to think about uh, even even since 1953 how the two would come together and unify. But um, with South Korea's election uh, two years ago of, of someone that, was, that took a, a harder position towards North Korea, it's become less likely. The good news is that North Korea has not tested a nuclear weapon since 2017, and their missile tests have been less than in some previous years. But these are signs to watch, because this is a way that North Korea, under Kim Jong-un, really tries to gain the world's attention with significant missile tests, especially around intercontinental ballistic missiles with increasing sophistication, and another nuclear test is is the danger side too, because that's real, real saber rattling mm-hmm. on the Korean Peninsula. You know, before we let you go, Doctor Dewar, because uh, we are about to run out of time, I, I wish I could keep you for the next two hours. I have so many questions, but um, the other thing that uh, has been on my mind too, we haven't heard anything about this for quite a while. Um, there was talk a while back. Uh, and, and I'm going to kind of fold these two things into one here. There was talk quite a while back about Vladimir Putin. They were suspecting he was possibly critically ill, and he was not looking healthy. Uh, he seems to be functioning just fine at the moment, but we know he's not going to live forever. So thing one, I'm curious about what becomes of Russia when he does you know, when he does pass away, what what is going to happen with Russia? How will we see things possibly change? And number two, we're about to go through an election cycle ourselves, which is very tumultuous. Um, and I'm curious how we are viewed on the world stage. Absolutely. Vladimir Putin turned 71 in October. And so uh, he is getting older. Uh, he was first installed as prime minister in 1999 and then president uh, basically at the turn of the millennium and has quote-unquote won every election or been effectively in control since that time. And so often when I chat with my students who are in their late teens or early 20s, they've only ever known a Russia where Vladimir Putin is in control. And and at some point, um, you know, age will catch up, there will be challenges, but He could still go another decade, plausibly. And then it's worth looking at Kazakhstan, a neighboring country to Russia that used to be part of the Soviet Union because their former president, Nursultan Nazarbayev, he stepped down several years ago. But what he did is he installed a president 
and effectively made himself CEO of the board, overseeing the country where he would still be protected. And theoretically, in my mind, that's a model that Russia could follow in a way that Putin would stay in power, despite the challenges of age and running a country day to day. Mm -hmm. But there are uprisings in different parts of Russia. We've seen uh, Buryatia, for example, which is a uh, a small oblast or state in the south of the country, southeast. And there have been several others where people have sent their sons to war in Ukraine and they've died in very large numbers and mothers and families are really quite unhappy. And so Russia is having to send its internal police force to try and put down issues there. And again, when you're looking at an authoritarian country, it's hard to know exactly what's going on and what the dangers of uh, a much wider revolution are. But those are certainly some pieces uh, with that. In terms of our own election in the United States, I think uh, people are again looking at the issue of age uh, with with a potential matchup of Biden and Trump again. I think there's certainly concern because the United States is the leader of the free world uh, and uh, there's a real uh, partisanship in the United States that just keeps gap, that keeps widening. And I think that's concerning. And uh, when you're also uh, dealing with leaders who are uh, octogenarians in their 80s and late 70s, that is a challenge uh, both physically and cognitively. And I think that is very concerning to a lot of people. On the other hand, there is widespread interest in just what the primary system looks like. I remember a lot of people in England and other countries asking me, just, how does this work? What does it look like? How do you know uh, what's going to happen with it? And uh, especially looking at where we are now with Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, for example, that is very telling. So I think there's pretty widespread concern over what the United States will look like, how it will lead whether it will continue to be at the forefront of a range of different places, stick with allies, or to try and move more internal. These are huge questions that people from abroad are asking. Mm -hmm. So much to pray about. So much to pray about. Dr. Dewar, I appreciate your time this morning. Um, As I said, I I wish we had more time to be able to talk. There's a a lot that I'd still like to kind of tie together, but we'll, uh, we'll connect again soon. But thank you for spending time with us this morning. Absolutely. My pleasure. You're listening to Mornings with Kelly and Steve on Moody Radio. From the word to life.